Hey, Collaborist, I'm Ben Leroy. And I'm Jason Buckholtz. And you are right now witnessing, listening, watching a historic episode of CollaboraCast. And for that, we thank you. How's it going, Jay? I'm doing very well. How about you? I'm doing great. I want to give an immediate, uh, just lots of gratitude and thanks. We have a producer now, folks. Caitlin is working behind the scenes to make sure this podcast is going in the right direction. And I am very grateful for that. So thank you, Caitlin. I was excited to use the phrase, our producer, as, our producer. as, as yeah. I am when I say my agent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Another fun thing to say. I, I often refer to you as my business partner, which also kind of has a little gravitas behind it, you know? It does. Yeah, the we were reason... having a corporate meeting and Jason, my business partner, and I, we had to discuss corporate things. Co-owner, co-founder. Yeah, co-founder. Yeah, that's good. Visionary. Also historical because we had the correct video playing at the, for our intro. Yeah. Uh, astute watchers of last week's episode, now that we have this new dynamic format, might have been like, oh, yeah, that's kind of a cool video that you ran before and after the episode, but I don't really see how it relates to you. And that's because your pal Ben, instead of loading the correct intro and outro video into StreamYard did the one that the designer gave us as a rough draft. And so if you noticed a whole bunch of things that weren't even in English, uh, that's my fault. But this week, we have a producer, people. We have a producer, and <laughs> things are just getting done correctly. How's it uh, going since the last time we spoke, Mr. Jason Buckholtz? It has been A-OK. -okay. We are, uh, what are we going to be talking about today? Well, as I mentioned last episode, I've been spending a disproportionate amount of time in the Reddit, the subreddit for writing, and I have noticed a trend, and it is a very, very contagious, and just, it's showing up all over the place, and it's a lot of younger writers in their journey, panicking because they're trying to write a novel at 17 or 18 and they just don't feel like they're good enough to do it. And they're getting like really down on themselves. And then you see someone pop in who's in their early 20s and they're in a similar boat where it's just like, I, I just, I want to write, I want to write novels and I'm not doing a good job of it. And we totally understand that. And I just kind of thought, you know what? I had a lot of these thoughts and feelings, too, when I was younger, and I wish that I could share them. I wish that super ancient Ben could go back in time and talk to younger Ben, and I think it might be an ultimately fruitless conversation. I don't know that younger Ben would want to listen, but maybe the ego of older Ben uh, imparting wisdom on the younger version makes me feel good. So I asked, I said, Hey, Jay, would you maybe be able to figure out some compassionate words for a younger Jason? And we can kind of talk about some of the things that you run into when you're young and you want to write novels, but things just don't work out and maybe help people understand the concept of time and how it keeps going, keeps going. It's a great prompt. And I've got some, some ideas. Before we get to that, though, I did have a question from a client. 
Okay. That I could not answer, so I wanted to bring it to you. This is more uh, you from your publishing and and acquisitions background. I think okay. would have more experience with this. Sure. So this is a novelist uh, with whom I've been working for several years, and he has a pair of novels that he has written. He's written more than that, but as of right now, he's working on a pair of novels that are it's the same character. Um, it's one follows the other. And his question was about how or if he should bring that up as he's querying. Does should that be included in a query letter? How should he talk about that? Does it matter what um, what a, from from a publishing standpoint and acquisition standpoint? To what what degree does that make a difference or how should that be brought into the conversation? Yeah. I'm of two minds, and it's basically different parts of the process. I think when you're reaching out to an agent, you want to go with one work. You want to go with the stronger work. You want to go with the work that you feel the agent will most likely groove with. And there will be a natural extension of whatever conversation happens if an agent is interested that they will be curious about what else you've been working on, what you might have in the pipeline. Because for an agent, they're like, hey, we're going to get you this first book deal. But in the best case of the best scenarios, we're going to be working together for decades. And so I want to know how to strategically be able to help you grow your career. So I need to know that you're working on other things. And um it's just good intel to have. But when you are querying initially, it can look scatterbrained if you're like, well, I have this, but then I also have this other thing. And, you know, I've had people pitch three, four, five books in one query letter. And it's like, just, just pick one horse. We can't ride all of those horses at the same time. Like, let's just pick one horse and start there. And I think part of that might be driven by insecurity or uncertainty about like, well, I don't know which one of these novels is going to be the one that has the most appeal for this person. So I just, I'm shooting my shot. I just want to let everyone know about all of them. And I, I recognize the temptation, but I would suggest steering away from it. Now, where this can also be helpful though, is I have definitely, definitely uh, have firsthand knowledge and experience where an agent will take one of their clients' works to a publisher. And it's possible that they'll take that work to multiple publishers. And part of the negotiating process, part of the bidding process, is that it may be that all of the publishers are competing over one title. It's going to auction or there's just heated interest in it. Some publishers to sort of sweeten the deal because they really want that first book might say, what else do you have? What else have you worked on? What else, what else do you have available? And I definitely know agents who have been able to make multi-book deals based on the initial novel they were trying to sell and other books that the author has lying around, even if sometimes they're partials. So it's good for an agent to know of the existence of everything that you might have right now that is 
commercially viable or marketable or pitchable or is in that area. But in your initial reach out to the agent, just stay focused as best you can. So briefly mention it or don't mention it. Uh, you could just say I'm, I'm at work on novel two or something like that. I wouldn't highlight the fact that you base I, what I wouldn't do is say like, I have two books that are of equal strength. I'm sending you this one. Um, because it does look like maybe you're not focused and maybe your energy isn't there. You're going to, it's going to be an immediate thing. It's not going to be a selling point for the agent to be like, Oh, well you have a second book. Now I'll take you on as a client. If they're interested in book one, they're going to say, let's get on the phone and talk, see if we're a good fit for each other, see if we're a good match. And then when they do, they will 100% say, what else are you working on? What other books do you have, et cetera? So it's not like if you don't say it, then you're never going to get to tell them that you have this other project. How about if it's the first book in a series? That's so it. This is, it's obviously going to be a standalone book, but it's you know you're hoping that this is going to be a series. Yeah. And because I worked in crime fiction and because crime fiction lends itself to series potential quite a bit, definitely there were times where this is the first book in a planned series. It could be that this is a standalone novel or it could be the introduction of this character. It could be a series. I would maybe feel more inclined to mention that book two in the series is already done. If, I, if I'm pitching book one, but book two is already done, then I would mention it. I would say that this is the first book in a planned series. The second book is already done and I'm working on the third book or something like that. Uh, that if, if it's a series and then it makes sense to just show that you're going to have immediate stuff to follow it up with. All if right. It's, if it's two separate standalone novels that aren't connected, I'd be less inclined to say it. But if it's a series and it's books one and two in the series or, you know, hopefully books one and two in the series, then I would, I would mention that. Otherwise bet foot, best, best bet foot, best, best foot, best foot forward. forward. Yeah. <laughs> right on. Well, thank you for that thorough response. Yeah. Now, so what would you say to young Ben? Young Ben, the aspiring writer of series. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's get some things uh, established early on here. Young Ben used to go to Half Price Books. Is Half Price Books a national chain? It's out here. Okay. So I would go to Half Price Books, and I would get old issues of Writer's Digest. And it was so exciting. to. And I'm in high school when I'm doing this. It was so exciting to, like, be part of this cool world. I still maintain that novelists and writers in general are the coolest people on the planet. Um, and it was an early introduction to that community, to that language where people are talking in the shorthand of a creative pursuit. You get little bits of rules, show, don't tell. And I wanted to absorb all of that i felt i was a i was a punk rock kid who felt like he had a lot to say and i would at this point want to call attention to the idea of 
feeling like you have something to say is not the same thing as having something to say. And that there is a inverse relationship, at least in my life, that I had a lot more to say, felt like I had a lot more to say when I was younger. And now that I'm older, I feel like even though I might have more I can talk about, I have less to say. But that early on fueled by Mountain Dew and Doritos, like I'm 17 and I have the truth and I need to share it with you because they are out to get me and society doesn't understand me. Which, yeah, I get it. Like, I'm certainly not the first kid who felt that way, and I'm certainly not going to be the last. So I would, one, I would tell young Ben if I could lovingly impart something to young Ben. I would say, I know you feel like you have a lot to say right now. And I know that you can look at the world around you and be like, this isn't right, and I want to make something different and better, and that creative writing is an outlet for that. But you're 17 years old, dude, and life is a lot longer water slide, and you're going to need to kind of go down that water slide a little bit more before you have the potential of saying something in an artfully communicative way that will mean something to somebody, and that's okay. Nobody is expecting you to have all of the answers at 17. So that's the first thing that I would probably say. What about you? I was not really aware of having writerly ambition until I was, it was post-college. So as, as a high schooler, even as an, an undergrad, I was not aware of really wanting to do this. I, I enjoyed it. I, I, felt like I had some some talents but I didn't it was it was a a good bit later that I said okay I think I really want to I think I am going to really make a go at this I I think I think the timeline would be one of them you mentioned earlier young writers who feel like they're losing time that they they want to get things done you know we see things like you know the 30 under 30 and it's like oh, i've got to get my first novel out there and you know shortlisted for all the major awards by the time i'm 25 or i'm, I'm losing ground this is a message not just to 20 something writer jason but of, of a year ago maybe even yesterday but it's you know i have i have friends who are my age who are retired who are on the brink of retirement um people in say a couple of law enforcement friends who are are retired or very close to retired and i'm thinking man i think i think i'm probably going to hit my stride as a writer in 5 to 10 years from now <laughs> so it's you know it's not we're not NFL running backs. This isn't, this isn't a, this is, I think actually one of the very few careers. And by this, I, you know, I think the, the arts in general, 
but I think maybe writing in particular, where you really are you're you're in it for the long haul. And as we get older more experienced i think you know it's just it's you get better and better and i i would have been nice to know what some of the timelines were going to be earlier to 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 realize that these things can take a very long time and that there's a long slow arc to to this um another thing that i would have said would would be to to build community to find community. I uh, This is something that both you and I have done over the years, me primarily initially through through the MFA at USF and you through your, your publishing companies, although I'm sure there were things before that. But those were, you know, that has been a huge factor in my development as a writer, having access to the opinions of people like you and, and, all of the many other people who have contributed to my development as a writer over the years. I think when I started out, I was, I, I, I wrote my first novel before I went, before I really was in touch with any other writers before I went to that MFA program. And that was what prompted me to go get that MFA was I, I wrote this novel and I realized that I really had, not had a single idea of what I was doing at any point along the way. <laughs> Somewhere in the course of that process, though, I was like, I want to be good at this. I I want to learn how to do this. This is I, in the in the process of that that first kind of experimental novel. So then I took that novel into the into the MFA program and workshopped it and workshopped it and workshopped it and tried to. I guess this brings me to another point tried to incorporate every bit of advice that I got on it into the work so that by, you know, after three years of, of workshopping and revising, it had completely, its character was completely different than it had been starting in. It started out as, as a, a really lighthearted kind of some kind of in the vein of, of like a John Irving type thing um and then by the end it was you know it was it was i felt like i had to be very serious you know here i was paying a lot of money for an expensive mfa at a private school and i was like well i i i need a whole lot more gravitas um i'm, I'm paying for gravitas <laughs> can you can you sit with that though for a second because i think that that's a really important thing to note is that we write things initially whether we know what we're doing or not and then we have these realizations that this thing that I've been working on, maybe it's something else. And it's hard to let go of what that initial thing was that we were working on. Like I, I put in all this work to be this not so serious novel, and now it needs to be a serious novel. And that letting go and not, not seeing years spent writing something that's not going to get published in that form as a waste. It's not a waste. You learned about craft. You learned about things. But did you have a hard time letting go of the initial book when you needed it to have more gravitas? Yeah, no, I had more trouble letting go of it after I had 
transformed it and built all these things onto it that didn't belong there in the first place. And I was like, I did this, this got so far away from what the initial conception was that I just need to put this in a drawer and say goodbye to it. I, I thought I was doing the, the right thing. Those are air quotes, um, by, by trying to make it what, you know, by trying to incorporate all of the incredible feedback that I was getting. Um, but I, I remember really clearly that it 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 lost its way on day one the absolute first moment that it appeared in this was so lewis busby was one of my favorite instructors there i was in his workshop the very first question he asked everybody this is the day one of the first workshop he asked everybody to go around talk a little bit about their about their novel and he asked i i I wasn't the only person that he asked this of, but I, I said what mine was. And he said, is it funny? And it was, it was, <laughs> it was a, um, the whole premise was this little town, this little mountain town that's depressed. They're, they're losing money. The tourists aren't coming anywhere. They concoct this monster hoax. They basically, there's one of the, one of the, it's not a concerted effort, but one of the residents goes, he creates some giant footprints and then it kind of creates this, this fervor of people coming to visit and this, this kind of swamp monster mania takes over. And it was funny. But when he asked me that, I thought I was supposed to say no. No, it's very serious. <laughs> right. Right. I was like, no, I'm not here to, I'm not here to crack jokes. I'm not here to be funny. What am I, a clown? Do I amuse Is that you? What you think? Yeah, I'm a clown yeah. and not so, an existential yeah. adventurer. Yeah. The the very first question he asked is, "Is it funny?" And I said, "No." And it was like at that moment, it was lost. At that moment, it was a lost cause because I, I, you know, looking back in that moment, I was like, I, I was not connected to what that story really was. I was, and and that's fine. You know, now I've I've. It's like, okay, that was, and that whole process was an experiment. It was like, it was an experiment to write this. It was an experiment to just have. And, and I think that having it going into the program led me to get a whole lot more out of the program than I might have otherwise. I knew people at the end of the program who really didn't have much to show for themselves. I had written a manuscript. I had revised it extensively. I had all kinds of feelings and thoughts about what had happened, all of which ended up in a drawer. And then I went and I wrote a paper son, which you famously published famous to our seven listeners anyway, yeah. it's very <laughs> but, famous in my world, but it, it was, you know, at, at that moment, it was, it was a little bit of a, it was, it was looking back. It was like, okay, that that's the point at which that particular manuscript was a lost cause. I wasn't connected to what was really at its heart and it was there as raw material. And, and looking back, that's fine. But I would have, I, I, I tried so hard to incorporate everything that I had been told. And really it took a long time for that to happen. I was trying to do that through the workshops Every bit of it, I was like, okay, my next, you know, tonight I need to go home and figure out how to do what this great teacher just told me to do. And I, I got out of the program. I did one more complete draft of, of that manuscript that I had taken in. And then it, it wasn't really going in a direct, it, it just was going in too many directions at once. So I put it away. I gave it some time. I let 
that advice kind of sink in. Like I gave, it was probably, you know, and then so over the course of, I, I gave it some time and I let the advice that didn't resonate with me filter out the things that did kind of, I let them stick and I let them develop. And so by the time I sat down to write a paper sun, I, I wasn't doing that anymore. I wasn't, I had, I had taken all that advice. I had filtered through it. I had kept what I was going to keep. I had dispensed with what I was going to dispense with. And I had, I, I had had a chance to make my own decisions about things. And so by the time I sat down to write a paper sun, it was a, a much more cohesive experience in terms of the vision for it, in terms of my intentions and how I was able to, to follow those through. Okay. And let me ask you this, was any of that time spent in all of the process to get you to a paper sun? Would you consider any of that time wasted? No, no, not at all. And it's, they're, these are, are circuitous journeys and it, it's hard. Like this is a really hard thing to do. It's hard to, and I am I'm, I'm constantly reminding my clients of that. I hear, I, you know, I talk to aspiring authors all the time. Like, I just, I want to get this done by Christmas. I just, I got to have this in people's hands by Christmas. Like why? Yeah. Why, 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 why the hurry there? Somebody could be reading this in 200 years from now. Yeah. Like why, why, what's, if you get it up this Christmas or if you get it out next June, what, you know, what, what, what's the difference? Why does it, why does it matter? Yeah. What's and the so hurry? that there's just baked in impatience and a lot of it probably stems back to just our social media influencer culture of everyone's living the most exciting and fulfilled life everywhere except me. And if I can just say that my new novel is out even if I just throw it up on Amazon and only one person buys it and I'm that one person, at least I can say my novel is out. And it's like, all right, I enjoy a sugar rush as much as the next person. But when I'm done with my donut, I still have to go on with my day. And it really isn't the life changing experience that I thought it would be. And then, boy, that's a despondency that I've noticed in a lot of people is it's like launch day's coming, launch day's coming, five months, four months, three months, two months, one month. Everything's really exciting. It's release night. We're doing an event and then adrenaline crash. And it's like, now what? Because you were expecting the heavens to open and harps to be playing and you were going to be raptured up into the great literary salon in the sky and doesn't happen and now you have to deal with that so let the process take the time that it does and manage your expectations from there so how does one do that how do you manage those expectations how do you manage that impatience it, it's hard to tell uh 18 year old ben how to manage expectations because 18 year old ben thought he knew everything and had the energy to try and prove it <laughs> and 47-year-old Ben doesn't have that energy and also acknowledges that I don't know shit about anything. Like I'm I'm learning as I go and I'm having to unlearn as I go. That is an important part of that process as well. I would I'm trying to like 
find the quick thing that we can cut up and use as a YouTube short and an Instagram reel and a TikTok because look at me. I'm trying to capture social media after I just told you all that it wasn't a good idea. But I would say like getting your heart broken, that's a key thing for uh, being able to write. I would say that if you plan on writing about large societies and things happening, then you need to be a full citizen of the society that you actually exist in so that you can see how societies work and how they go from a perfect concept to an absolutely battered and rolling along skeleton of the original concept and the idea. But being able to understand the human condition and the way humans work and the way interpersonal on a micro level and a macro level works, even if you're writing about a society in a distant corner of the galaxy that is not ours, understanding how worlds work is key to that. So participate in the world around you. If you are 18 and you think you have all of the answers between you your My Chemical Romance CD and going to Hot Topic once every couple of weeks to like see what the angsty new thing is, you're not, you're not actually gonna, you're not actually gonna have much to say because you're just rehashing My Chemical Romance lyrics and Gerard could probably write the novel better. I don't know. I don't even know if the kids listen to My Chemical Romance. I'm probably like, Oh, you're on the oldie station? I don't know. I don't know what people say about that anymore. But it was the Smiths. It was My Chemical Romance. It was the Counting Crows. It was whoever was the melancholy, like, this person gets me. You know what? Your job is to get yourself. Look, We've talked. Look, microphone drop. <sighs> <laughs> Can't drop a mic that's on a boom. It doesn't have the same effect. We've talked extensively about how much of writing occurs when you're not sitting there with your fingers on the keyboard. I've had, you know, so many, the majority of my breakthrough ideas happen when I'm, my subconscious is working and I'm just out on hikes. You have spent lots of time out in the world doing community service, connecting with people and and accumulating experiences and i think that that's that's would have been something that i think i had a i think i had an instinctive understanding of that i did a lot of traveling in my 20s was very lucky was very fortunate to get around to a number of places and i think on some level i thought this is all going to come in handy someday Absolutely. somehow this isn't just hedonism this isn't just me you know going around eating delicious things in different countries but you know this is this is all has some it's type research. of meaning and yeah and i'm still you know i have this non-fiction project that i'm is kind of next in the queue and i'm starting to see how there is a convergence of of those experiences of of long ago and a lot of the things that i'm kind of thinking about now oh. on that level Oh, yeah, definitely. We've hit this 
different stage in life that you're always aware about in the abstract. But then when you start noticing that people are getting older around you and like, it's no longer just a, yeah, someday people will get old, but it's people are old and I'm people. And it makes you look at your mortality in a different way. It makes you look at the world around you in a different way. And it's, it's a reminder that I didn't, I didn't know everything at 18. I don't know everything at 47. I'm just probably uh, more eyes open and receptive to what's going on around me and trying to make sense of it than I would have been before when I just figured I knew it. And now is when we have the podcast. We have less to say and more to pay attention to. Yeah. Now is when we're, we're spewing things out. You buy the expensive microphones. <laughs> you have a right to just say things now. You're, <laughs> you're guaranteed an audience if you just get the proper equipment. I think one other thing I would, one piece of advice I would give my younger self is to find more ways to get books in my head. I um, spent a lot of time in my 20s playing video games. I still do, but I listen to audiobooks now when I'm <laughs> when I'm doing it. The video games are a lot less sophisticated because they're just kind of ways to zone out. But I will, I'll, I'll I I love audiobooks. I I remember going to the Berkeley Public Library and getting books on CD, books on tape. I remember uh, there's a recording of Grapes of Wrath out there that I think I had on like a twenty four cassette thing that I listened to in my car as I commuted and it was amazing I wish I, the 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 reader for it did an amazing job I wonder if it's the same reader and the same version that I have I have the audiobook of Grapes of Wrath um, I love it and I one of the things that I love most about it is the narrator so we should compare notes on that it's the same narrator who I think also did East of Eden and that is my fave I assume it probably was because after this production, I don't know why anyone would think there was a need to redo another production of it. But it was, you know, this was 20 years ago, probably that I I listened to that. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I always have, you know, I get up every morning. The first thing I do is I, I make my kids lunch for school and I put on my headphones. And as I'm doing that, I'm listening to whatever audiobook I have going. I probably listen you know i get a good good hour in before it's time to go wake up the kids and that's just become a, a really kind of special time for me in the morning i love that for you yeah, yeah that's great yeah and then you know things things get busy throughout the day so um i just the the, the technology now makes makes literature so accessible and you know i wasn't I did a little bit when I was commuting and, um, but you know, I, I think in my twenties, I was more interested in hanging out with people and going out and doing all these things. And I didn't, which is I, critical I, to being able to understand the world and be able to write about it. It was, it was, but I, I, I think I could have tipped. Well, I, I'm not going to get into could have, should have, or would have, but sometimes every now and then I'll come across an author and I'm like, I, man, I wish I had discovered this writer. 20 years ago i would have read every sure. single thing they've written by now um yeah there's only so much time and there's a lot more books than there are time so i think i would i think i would have said you know read go read this person go read that person <laughs> yeah speaking of video games are any of the video games you play online in case any collaborists 
want to join you for some some video gaming? No, they're basically just moving colored things around as a way to. They're they're basically fidget fidget tools. Okay. While I while I listen to things. Okay. I'm just a, ways to kind of keep my my hands busy. I'm a nightly video game player, so I just always wonder how many uh, how many people are out there who are part of the Venn diagram that listen to this podcast and play video games. I'm sure there are many. Now that now that people our age are of our generation, um, that didn't make any sense. Now that most people alive have been brought up with video games, as opposed to when we were kids, when it was like these kids and their video games. Now it's you know you have to be 65 and up to have not been raised with video games at this yeah. point. I know that longtime listener and a gentleman who I'm a fan of. In fact, in fact, I've got his galley right here. Uh, Mr. Steve Weddle. Mr. Steve Weddle and I will sometimes play video games. So I know that the literary community has at least one other miscreant along the lines of my own video game taste. Speaking of Steve Weddle, he's got a new book coming out in February. Oh, I'm sorry, January of 2024. And uh, I'm going to get him on the podcast so he can talk about his journey as a writer because Steve is somebody who spends years on books and I believe writes everything out initially by hand. And he is a craftsman's craftsman. And I published his novel and short stories, Country Hardball, um, when I was at Tyrus. And the New York Times gave him a review where they said that his writing was downright dazzling. And a guy like that, guy like that should be on the podcast. We need more downright dazzlers on the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to like or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend if you feel like it. If you feel like there is a young writer in your life and they need a little pat on the back and a little assurance, let them know that we've created an episode just for them, just very earnestly, just for them. Jason, do you have anything more that you'd like to add? For story. For community.